How often have you heard that there is so much bias in popular media that you can't trust any of it? And if that's so, how do we evaluate what we see and hear? Today, you'll hear some statistics concerning mainstream media that just may shock you. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. This is a program that examines cultural and spiritual issues in the light of reason and evidence. And we have resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find articles, books, and past shows, including Dr. Zuckerman's interviews with experts on a wide variety of topics. So go to evidenceandanswers.org and check it out. Pat? Yes, thanks, Kevin. Well, you know our guests, and most of our listeners know our guests. He's my boss at Probe Ministries, Kirby Anderson, the National Director of Probe and also the host of Point of View Radio. So, Kirby, welcome back to the show. Pat, always good to be with you. You know, Kirby and I will be speaking at a conference in Hawaii, the Hawaii Apologetics Conference. It's going to be on the island of Oahu and Maui, February 19th through the 22nd on Oahu and the following weekend after that. And so we're looking forward to having Kirby and Dr. Gary Habermas speak uh, at this conference, and you're more than welcome to come. Kirby is kind of like the Christian Sean Hannity. If you want to know what's going on in current affairs and current issues of the day and get a good biblical perspective, Kirby is the guy to see. And one of the things we're talking about today, Kirby, which has been one of the most popular talks you and I give, is truth in media. How do we discern between truth and falsehood in media? And you know, Kirby, I was on the treadmill the other day watching two TVs side by side, Mm -hmm. and it just so happens they were on the same news story. One was Fox News and one was CNN. They were covering the same story, but it seemed like they were covering two totally different stories, two totally different perspectives. News reporting has changed since the days of Walter Cronkite. You know, what exactly has changed? It seems different nowadays. Well, one of the things that I have found over the years is that when you actually look at the people who are the opinion leaders or the gatekeepers in the media, they have a slightly different view than even during those times. Now, Walter Cronkite and others that were involved in news, they definitely had an opinion, but their philosophy was is that they would try to keep their opinion out and try to give you the news and the facts. So part of it has to do with a different philosophy about covering the news, but also it has to do with just the nature of the news people that are in the decision-making positions. When I was at Georgetown University, a friend of mine, Robert Lichter at George Washington University actually went out at that time in the 80s. This was in the early 80s, and I'll update it in just a minute, but let's take that one first. And he began to actually interview those people who were actually the gatekeepers, the people that determine what you read, what you see, and what you hear. ABC, NBC, CBS, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, Associated Press, United Press International, New York Times, Washington Post. And back then, he found that, first of all, the news media was very liberal. I doubt that that surprises any of our listeners. But let's move on to a second one, and that is he found that they were also very secular. 86% of those people who were in the media elite seldom or never attend religious services. They don't go to church or synagogue. They don't know people that go to church or synagogue. And number three, they were humanistic. For example, if you take the issue of pro-life, 51% of Americans last year said that they were pro-life, according to a Gallup survey. Yet of the media elite, 90% of the media elite support a woman's so-called right to abortion or right to choose. So you can see that they were very different than the people that they are actually sending the news to. 
Now, when you go to television, we find the same sort of things, and I can update that. And now there have been newer studies done, which I think are a little more contaminated, because back in the 1980s, when you would ask those people, they were very blunt. But even now, when they've gone through and done analysis of news outlets, they found that except for Fox News, which you mentioned just a minute ago, and the Washington Times, they found that almost all the other American journalists, when you cover their stories, found them to be very, very liberal, very, very secular, and very, very humanistic. So part of it has to do with a change in journalistic philosophy, but it also has to do with the worldview of those people who are in the newsrooms, those people that produce television programs, those people that produce movies, and they, in a sense, are very different in their worldview compared to other Americans who are actually receiving those news stories or watching those films or watching those television programs. So let me see if I get this right. What you're saying is that they're not objectively reporting the news. Often there is a political agenda or a particular philosophical view they want you to buy into as they are reporting. Is and that I think, what you're saying? Yeah, I think part of that comes back to after Watergate, there was this real desire for a lot of young people to go into journalism to break the next investigative story. And you do rise in the ranks if you are able to, first of all, go along with those people who are your boss, those people who are determining what's actually going to be covered. And then second of all, you also gain notoriety by breaking a story or doing an investigative report. That, again, shows the journalistic philosophy. Those numbers I gave you and those percentages I gave you just a minute ago would be concerning, but they would be less concerning if there was an attempt to really try to objectively observe the news. But that's not the case. The other thing that you might understand is when you look at geography, most of the people that determine what you see, read, and hear just in news alone tend to come from the Northeast. As a matter of fact, a high percentage of them come either from New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania. Now, there's nothing wrong with being from the East Coast. I would be equally concerned if all the people in the news lived in Topeka, Kansas, or lived in Seattle, Washington, or Honolulu, Hawaii. I mean, th the point is, this is not very representative of the American culture. And so as a result, there is a little bit of an inbred nature to this. There is also sort of a bias towards trying to have a political agenda, as you point out. And also, ultimately, we're all subject to our own worldview. On Evidence and Answers, you talk so often about how worldview is important. If you can tell me what's in the heads of individuals, I can tell you a little bit about how they're going to cover particular stories. Well, you mentioned about bias in the media. How is bias displayed in the media? You mentioned a few things, language, the kind of questions that are asked. How is bias displayed? in news reporting. Lots of stories that uh, simply come down to that. You mentioned language for the first issue that I want to put on the table. One has to do with the fact that he who can define the terms wins the debate. You've seen this in debates that you've done, and I've done it as well. You see this in various stories. Isn't it fair, I think, to say that we would allow people to identify themselves, unless they come up with a really stupid identification. And yet the news media has never allowed people who are pro-life to be called pro-life. They're called anti-abortion. Okay, well, if they're anti-abortion, then shouldn't the other side be called pro-abortion? No, they're not allowed to be called pro-abortion. They're called pro-choice. So you have pro-choice and anti-abortion. How about pro-choice and pro-life? You know, that would be fair. Individuals that are identified as part of the extreme right or the word fundamentalist is overused because if you talk about a fundamentalist Muslim in one part of your story and then later talk about a fundamentalist Christian, there's obviously seen as an identification or similarity. So language is part of that. 
what to include and what to exclude is another part of bias. And sometimes that may not come from the reporter. It may come from the editor. This last decade, we've had reporting that has come out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And I've had a chance to talk to embedded reporters. And they've said that if they were an embedded reporter and they were working with an editor that was favorable to their report, it pretty much came through unscathed. Some of the people they worked with for some of the other news outlets said, you know, I filed these reports, but they never made it onto the news. So that's another one. Then placement is important. If it's on the front page of a newspaper or if it's the lead story in a radio or television program, that is a way of telling you it's important. If it's on page 17 or it's on the very last story of the day, it tells you a great deal about how it's unimportant. So bias shows up in a lot of different ways. Some of it's intentional. Frankly, a lot of it is unintentional. I have been around enough people that work in news and television and movies and things like that. They simply say, we're just trying to tell the story. Even if you want to move from news to movies, I've, you know, was it H.B. Warner one time said, we don't make message films. If you want a message film, call Western Union. Kind of dates it. But the point is, we don't make message films. Oh, yes. Yes, you do. Do script writers have a worldview? Yes. Do actors have a worldview? Yes. Do directors have a worldview? Yeah. I mean, we have a worldview. We act through our worldview. And to, for us to try to suggest that whether it's a news story, whether it's a movie, whether it's a television program, it doesn't res- reflect a worldview. I think that's very naive. Yeah, Kirby, you know, you bring up a good point. You know, we just learned the whole global warming crisis may be false. However, I heard that only on conservative talk shows and and perhaps a couple conservative cable news channels, you know, Fox News being one of them, never heard them reported on mainstream media. Is that one of the examples that you're talking about here? Well, again, if you have the statement that it is settled science, then there is no reason to give the other viewpoint. Now, one of the canons of news reporting is to teach and give both sides, to give equal opportunity for both sides, maybe not equal minutes, but at least give different viewpoints. And when you're talking about a proposal in front of Congress, you're talking about something before the city council, that's a good way to cover a story. But if the argument is that this is settled science, well, then we don't have to give equal time or even some time to the other viewpoint. And so when you get a couple of stories out there, let's take science for just a minute. Two of my degrees are in science, so I certainly have thought about this. When it comes to uh, giving an alternative to stem cell research, well, we don't really have to talk about the issues, the moral issues of embryonic stem cell research, because that really isn't germane to a scientific discussion or medical discussion. When we talk about intelligent design, well, we really don't have to give a time to those people who disagree with evolution because everybody accepts evolution, so the argument goes. And back to your illustration, if indeed we are convinced that the climate science research is settled science, then we don't have to talk about those people who have disagreements about whether or not man-made climate change is actually taking place. So again, you can see how an appeal to authority, which again is another one of those logical fallacies, sometimes shows up in bias in terms of coverage. Kirby, how can we be more discerning about the news media? I mean, should we just boycott 
ABC, NBC, CBS, and just watch Fox or something? I mean, how, how should we be more discerning? One of the things that I will be speaking at at the conference that you have me speaking at, and I certainly speak on on a regular basis, is really this idea of how to develop discernment. And I've oftentimes used something that one of our former colleagues, Jerry Solomon, used to talk about when he was just analyzing the media, mostly music at the time, and that is stop, listen, and look. First of all, stop what you're doing long enough to concentrate. You know, whether it's watching a film, whether it's watching a TV program, uh, whether it's just surfing the internet or whatever it might be, lots of times we don't even really concentrate on what's being said. And that is very important. Uh, we have a whole generation of young people that just stick the iPod earphones in, just listen to the music, don't even evaluate it, watch a TV show, watch a movie, don't even think about it, watch a news program, don't think about it. So first of all, stop what you're doing long enough. Second, listen, that is give attention to what is entering your mind. Is it true? Is there a different point of view? What was said, most importantly, what wasn't said? And then finally, look, that is look at the consequences of that in your life, especially when you talk about entertainment. You watch lots of violence. Is that going to affect your view about violence? You watch a lot of sexuality. Is that going to affect you as well? In my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, I spend some time talking about all the studies that have been done in these major areas of media research that shows that what you see, read, and hear does affect your worldview in very profound ways. And when we talk about that, even in my book, I talk about what you see on television. We found, for example, studies done by uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics and their Journal of Pediatrics found that adolescents that watch lots of sex on television are more likely to get involved sexually. So you can see that it is important to really not only stop and listen, but also look, and that is, again, look at the consequences of the media input. My other suggestion for a lot of the people even listening to this interview is because you're listening to this program, you probably tend to spend a little more time listening to radio. That is a very good medium for communicating information. Television, although I have sometimes used television, we have a webcast even on our radio program, is a little more superficial because you tend to pay attention to how a person looks and the gestures and things of that nature, and it isn't as good a medium. But I think almost all of us would have to admit that right now we live in the midst of this media storm, so it might be good for people to cut back and say, let me uh, read more, let me watch less, let me think more, and really be discerning about the things coming into my mind. I think we have to do a fair amount of research, and I recognize that some areas it's really hard. You mentioned one a minute ago when we talk about climate science. Well, that's a little tough because that's involving science. So sometimes it's going to be difficult to figure that out. But I would say read broadly and read a lot more than just one particular source. You've been around me enough to know that oftentimes I'll go through some of these news magazines, and I won't read them all the way through. What I will do is I'll find articles. I will tend to rip those articles out, put them in a file, and then I'll find that maybe I'll have, okay, something from Time, Newsweek, maybe something from USA Today on the same subject, and then I can kind of read through it much quicker because they're all kind of in front of me at the same time. What happens is we kind of ping pong around. You know, we read one story and then we come back to that story on another news article or TV show later on, and it's almost hard to kind of sort it out. But very quickly, if you have some of that material in front of you, it's a lot easier. And the good news is, is that now we're talking about the internet. And because of that, you can type in 
to um, a search engine like Google, because Google knows all, uh, anything that you might want to begin to research, and you can see what is up there. There are lots of blogs and other articles and resources that help you kind of come to conclusions. And so the embarrassment of riches that we have now with so many news outlets, so many websites, so many different places where information is, that has been a tremendous benefit, but oftentimes it creates a little bit more of a challenge because there's much more to read than there was back when we basically had three major news networks giving us all the news about the world. Well, let's talk about movies. First, documentaries, movies like Fahrenheit 9-11 and things by Michael Moore. I think his recent one is Political. Very popular amongst the young people. A lot of places I go on the West Coast especially, I mean, they fully bought in to what he's presenting there. And it takes a while to explain, well, there's another viewpoint here. But how should we approach these kinds of, quote, documentary kind of movies? Well, again, I think when you're talking about at least uh, three individuals that have become very famous for their documentaries, uh, Michael Moore fits into that category. Certain Al Gore does uh, with The Inconvenient Truth. And another one that isn't quite a documentary, but oftentimes is done in sort of documentary style would be Oliver Stone. Now, I would say that each one of those individuals, I think if you uh, believe everything they said, then you uh, really have not served yourself very well, because all you have to do is be in the culture a little bit and know that there have been some real questions raised about what they've done. Uh, let me take Al Gore, for example. Okay, we're on the Nobel Prize, but also you can go to website after website after website that will have hundreds sometimes of concerns about what was in the movie. You would only have to look a little bit and look at a news story to see that in England, if they were to show that film in the schools, they have to issue some of the disclaimers from the film because we know, first of all, that some of the things in the film were exaggerations. Now we know that some of the things in the film were actually a misinterpretation of the data. For example, when he says that uh, the uh, hottest years, Al, happened after 1995 and the hottest year was 1998. Well, we now know that they've reevaluated the data, data and the hottest year was in 1934 and the 15 hottest years are over a number of decades. So we know that there are some things that are inaccurate in that film. Same thing with Michael Moore. Yeah, he's telling you his story. It's from his point of view. What is that point of view? It's a liberal progressive point of view. He's very honest about that. So whether it's sicko, whether it's uh, some of the latest ones on capitalism, whatever it might be, gun control, uh, you would want to, again, if you are going to be a wise and discerning person, read broadly. And all you'd have to do is type in their name and, my, and find that there are many websites that critique some of the things that are happening. And I would say that as soon as you watch those documents, Watch some other documentaries, and you'll be a lot better served. But if you simply want to say, no, I'm going to believe everything in this particular uh, documentary, then in a sense you're just simply succumbing to kind of a belief in propaganda that's put out by one individual. Everybody has a worldview. Al Gore has a worldview. Oliver Stone has a worldview. Michael Moore has a worldview. You and I have a worldview. I think a wise person would understand that worldview and look for alternative sources of information before they believe everything that they saw on that particular film. Uh, so, Kirby, how would you approach a crowd? Say you're going into a classroom, say like in Hawaii, 
where all the students have seen the Al Gore movie. And so they have bought into it. And how would you approach that? What would you say in front of a class like that? I would pick off just a couple of examples to say, if you really want to understand this issue, it's important that there are a few things that he says that most people do not agree with. I just gave you one on temperature. When you hear him say, really one of the most alarming things is there is the hottest day uh, years have all been since 1995 and the hottest year was 1998. That sounds like we're burning up. Well, I think all I would have to do is point out the fact that now they've reevaluated the data and what is said in the film is not true. Let's take a different one. Uh, one of the most visually alarming parts of that film is a part where he talks about the fact that the earth uh, might begin to get so hot that it would melt the polar ice caps and thus the sea levels would rise 20 feet. And then he shows this animation where a large portion of uh, Florida is being inundated. Of course, if I was in Hawaii, I'd say, and it would just begin to completely inundate Honolulu, for example, and things like that. He shows Bangladesh. Well, again, he argues that the oceans could rise as much as 20 feet. But, you know, he won the Nobel Prize with what was known as the IPCC, the International Panel on Climatary Change. And the IPCC, who also believes in man-made global warming, estimated that they thought that the uh, oceans would rise maybe 7 inches to 17 inches, about a foot. Now, you don't have to know a lot about mathematics to know that there's a difference between one foot and 20 feet. And if the oceans come up a foot, and by the way, the oceans have risen about a foot in the last century, then there's a real difference between the oceans rising one foot and 20 feet. Definitely. And so you can see that even other people who believe that man-made global warming is a problem, which I would have questions about, but let's just concede the point, even they, even though they believe that man-made global warming is a major problem, are saying one foot. But in the film, Al Gore says 20 feet. So once you start having that, I found that most students go, wow, okay, I didn't know that. Well, if those things are wrong then maybe I should go back and check the other facts. And that's all I'm asking. If you're going to be open-minded and really investigate these issues, you have to understand that if you bought everything hook, line, and seeker, I can now show you very quickly that some of those very important points that were made in the film are erroneous, either due to exaggeration in the case of sea levels or misinterpretation in terms of those temperature profiles for the continental United States. Well, let's move on to movies. You know, Kirby, um, I remember growing up watching Vietnam movies and everything in there was negative. It showed Americans being, you know, drug addicts and on drugs and raping women and burning villages. And there's really no positive movie of Americans in the Vietnam War until Mel Gibson's movie, We Were Soldiers, came out. And a lot of my friends who were in Vietnam said, we never did drugs. We never burned villages or raped women. You know, we fought according to the restrictions that were placed upon us. You know, we never did these things. And yet uh, all we saw coming out was, you know, all this negative stuff on Vietnam. And I see some of that with Iraq. What's going on in the world of movies? How do we see bias in movies? And how can we be discerning? Well, again, one of the things that is so striking is that when you go back and look at those individuals that are actually in Hollywood, Burbank, and that area, and Beverly Hills, again, Robert Lichter went back and evaluated those individuals that were either involved in producing television programs or producing movies, because lots of times they're in the same kind of venue. Again, he found they were very liberal, 
But he also found that they were the most secular institution in America. That is, the people in the movie and television production area. 93% seldom or never attend religious services. 45% had no religious affiliation. So again, these are people much more liberal than the average American, and as a result, tend to be anti-war, pacifistic, tend to be very critical of the capitalist system, tend to be very critical of Republicans, and also tend to be very secular, which then shows up in the way in which they treat religious figures. If you uh, see the person in a Vietnam film and he's religious, you know sooner or later he's going to kill somebody. If you see somebody who's religious in some film that relates to the culture, you know he's going to be the spaced-out wacko. If you see a capitalist in any of these films, you know he's going to be an evil businessman. Does that reflect reality? No, it doesn't at all. And so, again, recognize that when you go into a movie theater, recognize that when you turn on a television program, the individuals that are producing these programs, both on television and in the movie theaters, mostly, not all, but mostly are very different than you are. Does that mean you should never go to the movies? You never watch television? No, but it does mean that you better have your worldview glasses on when you watch a television program or when you go to the movies. So one of the things, though, you're endorsing here, Kirby, is that when we go to a movie or we watch TV or we watch news, we don't uh, turn our baloney detector off and passively absorb it. Actually, it's going to require us as discerning people to actually do more homework on what we see and be able to evaluate it, whether it's true or false. And I would say that one of the easiest ways to do that is to go back to one of the series of interviews you did recently on Evidence and Answers. You had Brian Gadawa, who wrote uh, Hollywood and Worldviews, and boy, he has done an outstanding job of helping us discern the worldview of Hollywood. And so if you want to understand that, or maybe Ted Baer's uh, Christian Movie Guide and some of those other places that uh, are actually helping you think through the worldview behind the movies. The good news is, again, there are some great resources out there. Yeah, Kirby, uh, tell us about your website and your show and also some places where people can get these resources. Well, they can find most of those links right on your website, but if they want to go directly to Probe, I'm with, again, the same organization you are, Probe Ministries. It's probe.org. We have a section there where you could even type in media. We have, uh, as a matter of fact, this uh, particular discussion we're having today about media and worldviews. I think that is actually a PowerPoint presentation they can download, but also I host a show called Point of View, which is with a different organization. That's pointofview.net, but a lot of great resources available, and I would encourage people to go and find those whenever they can so that they can be more discerning as we talk about media. Great. Thanks a lot. It's Kirby Anderson, National Director of Probe Ministries and host of Point of View. Thanks for being with us, Kirby. Thank you. Well, thank you for being with us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugarin. We hope you got some good information and we have more at evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism is available free and for purchase. And by the way, when you purchase our resources at evidenceandanswers.org, you keep this show on this station and help us to expand. And you may also want to partner with us. Just click the donate button on our front page. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers.